As is our custom, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word, and Megan Flahive will read for us. James 2, 14 through 26. Or James 2, 8 through 26. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. This is the most challenging text in the book of James. You might have caught that as you heard it read for you. And there are a couple of tricky features in the text. We'll get to those. Let me pray, and then we'll look at this passage. Father, we need the help of your spirit, but that is help you gladly give. So let us be responsive to that generous help now. Pray for understanding and clarity. May we see your word. May your word challenge us. May we have ears to hear and eyes to see in spite of our frailty and inclination to screen these things out. In Jesus' name, amen. The greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world that he did not exist. The greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world that he did not exist. Now, for the movie buffs among us, you will know that that is a line from the 1995 movie, The Usual Suspects. Kevin Spacey playing Roger Verbal Kent, who was really the, uh, the, the villain Kaiser Soze, who convinced the authorities that he didn't exist. So that's, you may know this from that. Now, the more well-read among us, or those who can Google it, know that that's actually a quote from the French poet Charles Baudelaire uh, in 1864 in some other French poem that I can't pronounce. But he said, the greatest uh, trick the devil ever played was convincing the world he didn't exist. 
But with all due respect to Kevin Spacey, who played Verbal Kent, and Charles Baudelaire, the greatest deception ever foisted by the devil was long before 1995 and 1864. And I don't actually think it had much to do with convincing the world he didn't exist. What's it matter if you believe the devil exists or doesn't exist if you don't know Christ? The greatest deception ever foisted by the devil was a lot longer ago than 1864, and it was these words I would submit to you. He, Satan, said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I don't know if you heard that subtle deception in there. Here's the deception. Here's the trick. Eve and Adam, who we think is standing right there saying nothing, abdicating his leadership. Eve, God is not good. He is withholding something from you. He is holding you back and holding back something from you. You should take what you want apart from the revealed words that he has given, which says, do not eat from this tree. Even contrary to those revealed words, take. You see, God is not fully good. He is keeping you back. He's keeping something back from you. The greatest deception ever foisted by the devil on the world is not convincing the world he doesn't exist, but convincing the world that God somehow is not good and that his words are not a reliable path of goodness and fullness and hope and blessing in this world. And that little thought virus lodged its way into Eve and Adam's mind and led to all kinds of destruction. And I think we probably know, all know here, we experience that in our own bodies and our own souls, that that little thought virus, that God is not good, and his words are not always a reliable path of goodness, lies in sort of the deep recesses and the dark corners of our own heart. And it leads us to doubt. We experience that. It leads us to recoil from the words of God and to be disinclined to follow him, to be disinclined to embrace the words of Jesus, even though they are a good way, even though they are a way of life and freedom, and uh, even though they are called in the scripture the law of liberty. So Megan read this. This is from James 2, verses 8 through uh, 13. This is actually not what we're looking at today, but it sets it up. So if you look there, James writes, and, and Taylor began this last week, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors, forever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you will become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. 
For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I'm not going to rehash Taylor's sermon. Go listen to it. It's on our website. Great. But I want to point out two things about the law here. And the law, when we look at that law, book in the that word law in the Bible, it's like this is what God says. The words of God to his people. What he, the way he's revealed about how we are created to live. One, it's called the royal law here. And as Taylor mentioned last week, that's the, literally it's the, the king law, the law of King Jesus. And James mentions the second part of that from the Gospels, love your neighbor as yourself. The first part of the royal law is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second part is love your neighbor as yourself. The, the hearers of James' letter would have known that. But he just quotes the second part of it. The, the, the Jesus law, summarizing all what God says, love God and love neighbor. Now, when we see the word law, we have a, an unhealthy relationship to the word law because we think of something like stuff you can't do or don't break this law or you will get in trouble. Like you have these really ridiculous laws like got to drive 55 or 65 or 70. Like, and so in my mind, you know, that's a minimum and a maximum all at the same time. The goal is to drive 70 on a 70 mile an hour. Well, not really, right? 74 because you probably won't get stopped. Um, but the goal of the law in, a, in our, you know, makeup is like what we can do, at, you know, not to break to not get in trouble. Don't break these things. That's not really the biblical picture of what law is, especially the law of God. The law of God is this reflection of the way he's created us to live because it reflects his character. In Psalm 119, it's a psalm, very long psalm, I think it's 176 verses, all about the law of God. And there's eight different words for the law, and they include things like uh, statutes, precepts, ways, commands, decrees, your word. So it's, it's better to think when you see the law of God like the way. The way God has created us to live and revealed to us, us to live the good way. It's called here the royal law. It's also called, at the end of this passage, the law of liberty or the law of freedom. Why is that? Well, because it's good. It reflects how we're actually originally created to live. Now, we're bent away from that. So it's, we don't live in that direction apart from the power of the Spirit. And we live in a world that's bent away from that. And so even if you live in this law of liberty, there's friction with this world because it's bent away from that. It doesn't change the fact that it's still the good law and the law of liberty. It just means, ah, oh, we feel some friction because our, our world's sort of like eh, bent sideways from that. But it creates how we're made to live. So in the passage that I just read, we're not actually created to commit adultery. We're created to remain in faithful, committed love to our spouse. We're not created. So the, the law of liberty is the law of faithfulness. That's, we're not created to murder. That seems more obvious. But, you know, and Jesus drills down like, okay, anger also. We're not created for that. I mean, we can do it, but that's not the design intent of the human person. Just to be angry so much that we're killing people on the inside in our minds and then eventually on the outside. We're not made for that. The point of the passage today is that this royal law or the law of liberty gets worked out in our life when there is what this passage calls a, a living faith, a living faith. Or to say it the way I put it in your insert at the top in red, just so you don't miss it, Jesus creates living faith that reflects him 
to a world that wants faith on its own terms. It, the living faith that Jesus creates in us reflects him. He is the royal law. He's the, picture, the perfect picture of the law of liberty. So as that's getting worked out in our life, what's actually happened is we are reflecting Christ to this world. Or as C.S. Lewis said, we're becoming little Christ in this world. And we say, right, that Jesus creates this living faith in us because we looked at this a couple weeks ago, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So Jesus did something. He, he, this word of truth birthed in our life. Faith was created. Jesus creates faith in us, and this true faith produces him, reproduces him in our life to our world. Another way this passage says it, we cannot separate faith from works. We cannot separate faith from the outworking of the royal way or the way of liberty in our life. Or again, as both verses 17 and 26 say, a little more starkly, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. So there is a kind of faith, so-called, that's actually dead faith, that's actually not real. And uh, so this passage is meant to be a warning to the people of God, but it's also an encouragement. So I just want to say at the outset, I'm not trying to get anyone here to doubt their faith. That's not my goal here. But I do want us to see the very clear scriptural warning that challenges the idea that there can be such a thing as real faith with no evidence of real faith. And if you see, you know what, in my life there's no evidence of real faith, the good news is the application isn't try harder, do more, have a stronger faith. That's not the application. The application is, oh, the object of your faith is the wrong object. The object of your faith is not yet Jesus because Jesus, as we unite, are united him by faith, reproduces himself in us. It's not, the, and so we would say it this way, it's not the strength of our faith or our trust that saves us. It's the object of our trust. I put uh, in a quote on the front of your bulletin from Tim Keller, his book, The Reason for God. On the very front of your bulletin, Keller writes, imagine you're on a high cliff and you lose your footing and begin to fall. Just beside you is a branch sticking out of the edge of the cliff. It is your only hope and seems more than strong enough. How can it save you? If you're certain the branch can support you, but don't actually reach out and grab it, you are lost. If instead your mind is filled with doubts and uncertainty that the branch can hold you, but you reach out and grab it anyway, you will be saved. Why? Why? Because it is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. It's not the strength of our faith that saves us. It's the object, Jesus, the one in whom our faith rests, that delivers us. So we're going to go slightly out of order in this passage, and I want to show you two things. One, that there is a type of faith that looks like faith, that is actually not a living faith, it's a dead faith. This is James. And 
then three signs of living faith that point us and alert us to putting our faith in the object of Jesus. First of all, there is a type of faith that is not living. It is dead. Not really faith at all. So we're going to, like I said, start out of order. So look at verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So James is using a rhetorical device here of, a, of an imaginary conversation partner. The problem of this, and it's the problem anytime in the scripture you see quote marks. There were no quotation marks in the original. Did you know that? Quotation marks weren't invented until the 16th century in any language. Did you know that? So like when you're looking back at these ancient texts, we're like... We're going to guess where the quote marks go. In fact, some of your English translations put those quote marks a little farther out. They don't know where the quote ends because there were no quote marks. Okay, so I don't want to get into the difficulty of like, where does that quote end? What is it, you know, whatever. But the, the idea that he's getting at here is somebody in this community is saying it's legitimate to separate the idea of faith from works or faith from acts of love working itself out in your life. They're tempted to believe that, hey, as long as I live with accurate truth, it doesn't really matter if I love my neighbor or even maybe express love to God. And remember, we said this a couple weeks ago, they're in an intense environment of persecution. They've been, some of them, driven from their homes. They've lost their jobs. Maybe even some of them and their relatives killed or persecuted, uh, tortured. We don't know. And so... They feel like they have justified cause to fight back. And in James 1, James is like, retaliatory anger and vengeance is not the way. And so we can see, like I can get there in my mind pretty quickly how to justify, like, look, I'm believing the right things. Uh, I'm technically accurate. Surely I'm justified in anger and hostility. Do you know how I know that I believe that sometimes? Because I'm angry and hostile sometimes. And in that moment, it makes perfect sense to me. So these folks surely were struggling with the, the temptation to believe, as long as I'm t- technically accurate, I can be super angry and bring vengeance because these people did bad things to my family. And James is like, this is not the way of the kingdom. This is not the way of the kingdom. So my hunch is they're saying something like, come on, man, isn't just enough that I believe? And James would say something like, well, yes, if it's real belief, if it's just accuracy, it, you know, now believing the right things is better than believing the wrong things, but just believing the right things puts you in some pretty bad company. Look at verse 19. You believe that God is one, great. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You believe that God is one. What does he mean by that? that is the, that's what's called the Shema. That's the central confession of Judaism uh, drawn from Deuteronomy 6, 4. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. Deuteronomy 6, 4 begins, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Say, so you believe that? Great. Guess who else believes that? The demons. They hear that and say, check, that's true. I believe that, the demons say. Uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one. Everybody should obey him and, and commit all their strength and mental energy toward him in submission to him. Yes, we believe everybody is created for that. We're not doing that, but we believe everybody's created for that. Right? So they're, the demons in some way are theologically accurate is what this passage is saying. They're right. They see what is true, and there's even a response in their life. 
they shudder. Like, whoa, God is powerful. Whoa, gosh, I don't want to, you know, I can't bear to look at that. Right? So they, they realize the implications of what they know is true are weighty. The truth about God affects them in some way. There's some response in their life and they recoil from that truth. What this is teaching us, now I know this is weighty. There is a type of faith that is not faith. It's possible to know truths about God. to have Bible knowledge and learning. There's probably none of us in here that know more technical detail about the Lord than demons. It's possible to know these truths and have all this knowledge and to respond to him even as an authority, as a judge, as a lawgiver. To have a life which externally reflects God's authority in some way by a response to it. It's possible to have all that and it not be a living faith, a dead faith. Demons have all these things. I'm not trying to cause doubt here, but I want to be faithful to what the text is doing. You know, and it's, we see this often, friends, like famous, famous Christians, which is both an oxymoron and unfortunate, but like, well-known, effective. Eventually, like, they deny the faith. How is it? It's told us right here. They, they believed truths about God and even had a response to God in their life and were never, didn't ha- ever have living faith. It's not a, First uh, John 2 says, they went out from us because they were actually never part of us. In our country, since the Second Great Awakening, the last part of the 19th century, there's been kind of a phenomenon, like people come to Christ in sort of revivalistic circles by praying the prayer, praying the sinner's prayer. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But I've, you know, you've talked to people. Maybe this is you. Oh, I prayed that prayer a long time ago. There's no evidence I actually believe any of this in my life, but I prayed the prayer so I'm safe. You're not safe. You're not safe. Okay? I want us to see, that's what the scripture is saying. Not because it hates us and judges, because it wants us to be, actually have our faith connected to Jesus. Now I realize you might have people in your life where you've convinced yourself, I know this person has no evidence whatsoever of loving neighbor or loving God. There's no evidence of faith, but he or she prayed that prayer a long time ago, so I'm just, you know, Look, let's let that inform you how to pray for them, right? Pray for God to open their heart, break open their our hearts and minds and renew their hearts. That's what we want to pray for them. That, there, this is just a warning. There, it's possible to have a dead faith that's very accurate. Some of you, uh, we put on Workplace the other day that we, are, we opened up for members a scholarship to ITS, Indianapolis Theological Seminary, right? This is a Play. I love ITS. I, I used to be on the board. I was, helped found the seminary. I'm a faculty member there. It's great truths about God. But you know what? It could make you just a really good demon. <laughs> so, like, be careful. Now, we want you to go to ITS. We want you to add to your knowledge, have real faith. But uh, it, it doesn't alone deliver us to be accurate about things, right? Um, there is a type of faith that is not living. But there are three pictures here of living faith. 
First of all, loving our neighbor as ourselves. This is what God works in us. This is the good news. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The implication there is no. It's a rhetorical question. Real faith produces real working out of the royal law in our life. Here's an example, verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So remember, this isn't floating out in ether, not connected to anything. This is connected to what Taylor preached last week, James 2 where it says, if a man comes into your assembly wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, comes in and you honor him and treat him like, ooh, I'm glad you're here. Let me get your autograph. And then verse three, or I'm sorry, uh, James two. Oh yeah, verse two. And then a man in, poor man in shabby clothing also comes in and you don't pay attention to him, and you say, sit over here or sit at my feet, what good is that? So the, the, man, the poor man in shabby clothing is back, right? And he's saying, if somebody in your local fellowship, remember these, this is a letter given to, to little dispersed churches around, probably around the outlying areas of Jerusalem. If you have somebody in your fellowship that doesn't have the basics of food and clothing, like they don't have food to eat today, and it still gets cold in Israel, they don't have clothing, which is much more expensive relatively to them than it is to us. This is a person, a brother or sister in Christ, doesn't have the basic things, and you say to them, well, I hope that works out for you. Good luck. Like that is a fundamental failure of neighbor love. And it's a fundamental failure of seeing how we've been loved by the Lord. I will confess that it is tricky to make application of this today because we have a very different economy and a social safety net that could not even been envisioned in the first century Roman Empire. So there's more questions to ask to ascertain what's going on and why the situation as it is, is as it is if somebody literally doesn't have food or clothing. Right? Second Thessalonians 3, Paul says, look, if a person won't work, he won't eat. Right? Uh, it doesn't mean we don't help, but it does mean it informs us how we love most accurately. So there are more questions to ask today to figure this out. But we don't want those questions to function cynically in a way that prevents us from loving other people. Trusting faith that's connected to Jesus allows us to see something, to love horizontally. Trusting faith connected to Jesus shows us we are spiritually impoverished and profoundly in need and helpless on our own apart from Jesus. When we grasp that, when we see that, when that faith is connected to, to that reality, it allows us to look at others who are in need with a different kind of eyes. Trusting faith that's connected to Jesus allows us to see that we are without hope, without the resources of another that flows into our life. So when we see those who need resources, it changes our disposition. And this, I think this is super helpful. Trusting faith connected to Jesus, opens our eyes to the reality that every one of us here, if you're in Christ, you have and I have been foolish 
and squandered some of the spiritual resources he's given us. And that has not prevented him from giving us more and more and more and more. So when we see somebody who has been maybe foolish and squandered some of their material resources, it doesn't prevent us from giving them more. Okay? Now the truth is, if you're middle class, you've been foolish and squandered some of your resources too. You just don't pay the price as much. I get that. We've all squandered the resources Jesus has given us. And you know what he does in response to that? He gives. He gives and gives and gives. Colossians 3 captures this really well, I think, if you, you don't have to, you can turn there if you want, but I'm just going to read Colossians 3, 12. Like if you're struggling loving horizontally, the, the, the application isn't try harder, it's look to Jesus. Verse 12, Colossians 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. So put on then as God's chosen ones. What does that mean? The Bible teaches we're chosen because you're so great. No, 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 because you would never choose him. He has to choose us. That's why we're chosen. We're holy. That's not an activity that we do. That's something God's setting us apart. That's what holy means there. And beloved, dearly loved. God set his affection on us. So here's the truth, Christian, looking vertically, looking to Jesus. I am chosen in spite of myself. He set me apart and he set his love on me. Therefore, as that flows into my life, then look with compassion on other people who need you to set your affection on them and move toward them in love. So the, the prop, when we have a horizontal problem of love in our life, it almost always reveals a problem of vertical understanding of God's love for us. That's why we look to Jesus first rather than to looking to strength of our own faith. We look to the branch. Right? When we look to Jesus, we see one who saw us in our own need and poverty and entered into that need. Not just by taking on flesh and becoming human, which he did, but as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The first picture there is loving our neighbor as those who have been deeply loved by Jesus himself. And then it goes vertical. Loving God with heart, mind, soul, and strength. Look at verse 20. Do you want to be shown, foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. I'll get to that last phrase in just a second. What did Abraham do? It's a wild story back in the book of Genesis. You know, God... God says, I'm going to give you a son through whom all the promises will come. His name is Isaac. And then God says to Abraham in this extreme one time only in history test, I want you to sacrifice the boy. What? And in spite of not understanding how that would work out, in spite of it being very painful, Abraham moves in that direction. And God stops him, of course. But what we see there is Abraham obeyed the revealed words of God even when he was painful and it, he didn't understand it. 
That's vertical trust and love of God. Now, two things. One, this is an extreme example. But if it's, a, if it's true for Abraham in an extreme example, how much more true for us in less extreme examples? Secondly, I, I can hear some of you saying, what if God called me to do something like that? I'm going to tell you something. I promise you something. He won't. He won't. Ever. How do I know that? Here is the now revealed word of God. It is not calling you to sacrifice your child. Now, you might say, you know, I really sense that God has called me to do that. Stop it. It's stupid. Right? It's not in the revealed word. When you sense the Holy Spirit's telling you to do something that's contrary to the revealed word, you know you're making it up. Right? Then stop it. (laughs) So, uh, but what is revealed, we go all the way. That's what it looks that's we, we obey even when it's difficult, even when we're not quite sure how that works out. Okay, here's the big conflict in this passage. It seems like James is at odds with the Apostle Paul. Because James says in that last verse, verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And you know what Paul says in Romans 3? We are justified by faith alone apart from the works of the law. Like, what is happening here? Well, one commentator says James is actually just being mischievous and p- playing off Paul's words. I don't know if he's doing that. I think this probably came before that. Uh, here's what we know. Uh, the word justification, diakosune, has two meanings. As the word justification does today, it has two meanings. Paul and James are talking about different things. It becomes evident as you think about it. Justification can mean to be made right or it can be made mean to be shown right. We have an example. If you'll take out your text here that says living faith and look at all of that text from James 2 and Ephesians 2. This is what is called, ready, left justified. All the text is aligned with the left side of the page. It is left justified. It has been made aligned by another, right? These words couldn't do this themselves. Roger had to do this with Microsoft Word, right? Left justified, click, and it goes over to the left side. You could write justify, you can center justify where things are spread out, but it's like it's made aligned with something else. When Paul's using the term justification, he's saying that. God has made you aligned with himself by declaring you righteous. That's the kind of justification Paul is talking about. When James is using the word justification, it is like the kind of justification we're doing when we're in an argument with our spouse. and We're trying to prove ourselves right. We're justifying ourselves. Or when you say something and somebody says, I want you to justify that statement, it means I want you to prove that that statement is true. James is saying the works prove that your faith is true. But your works don't make you align in the, the Paul way of justification. Justification is two different meanings. That's all we're saying here. This becomes evident as we look at this passage I've totally lost now. Where are we? Um, Verse 22 again. You see that faith was active along with Abraham with his works. The faith was completed by his works or made perfect or perfected, made mature. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. So this is another perfect example where knowing a little bit of the Old Testament solves so many problems. You think what's this talking about, Abraham offered Isaac up, and that was when it says Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. That's not where it says it. That's a quote from Genesis 15. He offers uh, 
his son up 25 years later. Abraham is justified by trusting and believing God in the Pauline sense, in the Paul sense. He, his faith was shown to be true when it finally came to fruition and he obeyed God even when it was difficult and he didn't know which way he was going. So two different things. Uh, another way to say this is what we said in Reformed tradition. Faith, al- faith alone saves, but faith that saves is never alone. We are saved through faith alone, but this faith that saves is never alone. Real faith produces real works. What's the faith called that doesn't produce works? Oh, demon faith. That's what it's called. That's it. That's it. Again, the, the application isn't try harder, but look to Jesus. When we look to Jesus, we are aware of our own human limitation and our need for direction. When we look to Jesus, we're aware of our own disinclination to believe that God is good, just like Eve, just like Adam. And we see one who can help. We see Jesus who, when he took on flesh in his incarnation, was limited, right? Was limited in his human, in his incarnation and says, Lord, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. He submitted his will to his Father for your sake and for mine. Finally here, loving neighbor, loving God, and a deep courage to do both. Verse 25. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. That's the story back in Joshua 2, the spies go into the land. Rahab somehow, we don't understand how this works, believes in Yahweh, maybe through the witness of the spies, and she protects them uh, at the threat to her own life and rescues them and lets them out through a different way when people are looking for them. Now, if you ever needed an example that we're not talking about perfection here, look at Rahab's job. She's a prostitute, right? It's a devastated life in many ways. If there's evidence here. And this, so don't think that I'm, we're calling for perfection here. In fact, next week in James 3, when it talks about taming the tongue and language, James is like, who can do that? None of us can hardly ever tame the tongue. We're always saying stuff we shouldn't say. Right? It's not perfection, it's direction, right? Are we moving toward our neighbors in love, moving toward our Lord in love with some sense of courage? Rahab was courageous. She responded in loving faithfulness with what she did have to protect others for the mission of God, for the glory of God, where she was. Ephesians 2, in closing here, says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Where are you in your life right now? Right? Who's in front of you right now to love? They may be difficult, they may be extra grace required, or not so much grace required. Fair enough, we're called to love them right now. 
What is God calling you to in your life right now? What does his revealed word say about your life right now? Our call right now is to respond to that in humble, obedient faith. And these are all things Jesus empowers. Faith hooked into Jesus sees one who is courageous in our behalf. Faced hell for his people when they were in need and drank it down. That fateful day in the garden when Satan deceived Adam and Eve into believing God was not good and his words were not reliable and brought destruction into the world, that day, because of the goodness of God, was not the last day. And in response, he gave other words that said something like this in Genesis 3.15, I will send one who will undo what you've done today by distrusting my goodness and my words. And then in due time, he himself stepped into history and took on flesh and undid what they did and undoes what we do. He saw us in our need and he moved toward us. He saw us in our poverty and he took on our poverty. He gladly submitted his comfort for our good. He courageously laid down his life so that we would be free. And right now, he stands in heaven for you and for me, saying, I want to minister my grace to you over and over again. One of the ways we participate in this on a weekly basis in New City community is through the Lord's table, communion. This is open to those who are in Christ by faith, who have a living faith, even if it's barely breathing, right? If it's hooked into Jesus, it's alive. And the message is, don't look to the strength of your own faith. Look to the strength of your own Savior as he's presented in the table, in the bread, and in the cup. Let me pray and invite those who are in Christ.